Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have the privilege of being here in this comfortable location that you've provided, a place that's been here, drawing near on 80 years by your grace. Thank you, Father, that you have seen fit to cause this church to be planted and sustained for almost 80 years. Thank you for the individuals that you've used to proclaim the gospel, to embrace the gospel. We pray that you'd help us this morning as we meditate upon your word, as we continue to worship you in the word, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that you would refresh our minds in that gospel that you have brought to pass through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you use this time to mature us, but more than anything, we seek to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the greatest baseball players of the last generation have been discredited due to their alleged use of performance-enhancing drugs. Just a list of some that have been tarnished. Whether they actually did it or not, that's not what my intention is to bring to pass. But Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and Gary Sheffield, and Rafael Palmero and Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, and Roger Clemens, and of course, probably the most well-noted of these, whose reputation has been tarnished, is Barry Bonds. Taking performance-enhancing drugs enables a player to become bigger and faster and stronger via chemicals. During the particular era of baseball that we're talking about, home runs were being hit at a record pace. You'll remember there was a long-held record of 60 home runs by Babe Ruth that was broken by Roger Maris. And that, that record held for years and years. And then you had those famous races between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire going to 66 home runs and then Barry Bonds with 70. Most of these players that I mentioned would probably have ended up in the Hall of Fame, enshrined in the Hall of Fame. They would have been voted into the Hall of Fame. But because of this tarnishing of their reputation... Barry Bonds received like, a, I don't know, 30% of the, uh, the votes for the Hall of Fame this last year. The guy has the best numbers of any player in this generation, and he can't make it to the Hall of Fame. The reason? Reputation is tarnished. Reason? Performance-enhancing enhancing drugs. Most people don't like it when players or teams cheat. Cheating has invalidated the statistics of these types of baseball players. You know, it's same, the same thing in the political arena. You'll remember this statement by one of our presidents. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is, is. You remember that? I don't think people remember that for some reason. I don't, I don't get it, but that for some reason people don't remember that we've a tarnished presidency. Now, before that, we have a, a statement. You'll remember this one. I am not a crook. So we, we have, in the political arena discrediting or invalidation of people's roles. In the world of finance, you'll remember the, the Enron scandal? You remember that? How about Bernie Madoff? He done made off with my money. Even a little bit more recently, you'll remember the, the great bailout. You remember what those finance companies did with the money? Some of them. Remember they went out and like, they spent millions of dollars on vacations and stuff after they got bailed out? We, we bailed them out. We paid our taxes. I, I hope you pay your taxes. You should. We paid our taxes, and some of that money went to bail out a corporation that went and squandered the money on something useless. It's unreal. These kinds of, 
patterns really undermine the, the process. You know, people for a long time, they, they, there are people that aren't even alleged steroid users that aren't in the Hall of Fame because, well, they had really good numbers during those years. Like Craig Biggio and uh, Jeff Bagwell, during the same period of time, they were doing great. No one ever said they did steroids, but they're not voted into the Hall of Fame because they were in that era, and people think, well, your, your numbers are too good. It's better than you, so they won't vote for them. Their, their reputation has been tarnished by association. The office of president has been tarnished, and politicians in general, by things like we've just discussed. Financial institutions have been tarnished because people squander their hard-earned money that, that you know, we're investing here. I, I know of people that have given their money to you know, hope to, to have some retirement someday, and someone took their money and spent that on something else, and they've got nothing to show for it. Think about this. There are types of behaviors that undermine the confidence that people have in particular places. Now, here we are in Galatians chapter 1, and thus far in the book of Galatians, we've seen Paul's passion for the gospel. He tells us that it's not man's gospel, it's God's gospel. He condemns those who would try to change it in any way. And as we uh, come to this next section, we want to talk about uh, this week and next about this validated gospel, a, a gospel that's validated, not because of Paul, not because of Peter and James and John who seem to be pillars. It's a validated gospel because it doesn't belong to us. It's God's gospel. As we look at this text, we want to notice some, some really important realities concerning God's gospel. First of all, the gospel glorifies the Savior. The gospel glorifies the Savior. Now, in my notes, when I wrote this out and I was doing this, it actually is, the gospel shines the light on the Savior rather than the messenger. It's a little long for, for a, a, a point in a message. So I give you the, the full length, and now here's the abridged. The gospel glorifies the Savior. Look at verses 18 and following. He says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And it was, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. As we look at this section, I want for us to look at it from a couple of vantage points. First of all, asking a couple of questions. Does the character of the messenger matter? Does the character of the messenger matter? I'll ask you a follow-up question. Why did Subway change their ad campaign? You know why, right? Because the person that was their face is accused of and is convicted of child molestation. And we're only talking about food. Okay, so here's a food company. We've got this guy who loses all kinds of weight eating their sandwiches. And it, like, it, it, it's a boon to them. They, they, they gain a lot of customers because of that. And then some things are revealed about his character, and then they, they pull the ad campaign. Why? Because the, the character of the messenger does matter, even when it comes to a food company. How about when it comes to the gospel? How about when it comes to 
representation of Christ. Well, with that in mind, I want for us to look at three passages of Scripture to really help us to understand that the character of the messenger does matter. It matters greatly. Take a look beginning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And verse 5 is where we'll start. Paul writes, we'll start in verse 4 for just a slight bit of context. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that, you, that he has chosen you because our gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Listen carefully. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So what he's telling you is when the gospel came, it didn't just come with someone proclaiming it, though it has to come with proclamation. So it comes with the proclamation, but not just the proclamation. It also came with the spirit. So the spirit is putting the charge into this so it becomes dynamic and, and powerful. And then with full conviction. And that full conviction is related to that last sentence. You know what kind of men we were among you. You understood our character among you. We weren't just people that were peddling the word of God. We'll see that in chapter 2. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holily or holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You notice he, he really, he does a very long exercise here of communicating. Listen, we didn't come to try to gain something from you. We came to impart something to you. And in the process of imparting the gospel to you, we put the gospel on display. We worked day and night, night and day. We worked so that you would see the gospel, not only hear it, but see it on display. And their character was one of holiness and righteousness. They were blameless in the sight of the people before whom they gave the gospel. The question is, does the character of the messenger matter? Yes, it does. It matters a great deal. Look a little further. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This similar listing or set of qualifications is listed in Titus chapter 1. The idea that 
Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has in mind is that when you set up leadership in the church, when you set up those that will proclaim the gospel truths to a, to a church that needs to hear the gospel, that needs to be encouraged in the gospel, make sure that they meet certain criteria. Make sure that their character is of such that what they do displays what they say rather than contradicting what they say. See, anyone can get up and preach a message like you can actually memorize someone else's speech and come give it in front of someone. But that's not the power. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the spirit. And then that, that demonstration of that gospel must be in the life. So we have this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. See that? Well thought of by outsiders. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The next chapter, he talks about the good minister, the good servant of Jesus Christ, and, and he talks about all the things that, that must be taking place, but I want to just draw one verse out to you, chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, practice these things, talking about the scriptures and the call on his life, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, what does the rest of it say? So that all may see your progress. Why? You want people to think, hey, look at how spiritual that guy is. No, no. It's called putting the message on display. The message makes an impact. If there's no impact on the messenger, the message doesn't display the validity that it has. Does that make sense? Take a look now, one more passage about this. Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Timothy, sorry about that. Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy two, beginning in verse 22, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy. And it really speaks to this very subject about the character of the messenger and whether it matters or not. Verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, cor correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What a, what a passage. What a call on the messenger to, in every context, display the very thing that we preach. What do we preach? We preach we're sinners and that we're broken, and that we're needy, and that God will accept me not on the basis of my character, 
and my goodness, but in the, on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ, while I was still a sinner, died for me, removing the record of my sin, the guilt of my sin, and the condemnation against my sin. And he adds to my record, what? Perfect, pure, eternal righteousness. And so we know the gospel message is about my neediness and God's supply. And here we are dealing with someone and they're, they're broken and we get angry with them. So when we're angry with a broken person, guess what we're doing? Displaying the very opposite of the message that we preach. So he tells us to be gentle, to be caring, to be patient, even with evil. That, that's a pretty strong order that he's calling for. He says, be patient with their evil, it says. Why? Because that demonstration of the gospel, not only out of the, the words of one's mouth, but in the character of one's life, embodies the message. It puts the message in a fleshly form so that people can see it with their eyes instead of just hearing the words from the mouth. And so this is, this is a really great call. The, the, the character of the messenger matters. Can the character of the messenger undermine the message? So I'm, I'm going to be careful in how I answer that. It can undermine that person's message. It can undermine that person's proclamation. And I'll use as an illustration, without us turning there, the book of 1 John. The Apostle John reminds the, 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 the brothers that he calls little children, he reminds them, look at the character of the false teachers that you're, that you're being scared off by. Look at what they do. They don't love. They don't obey God. They don't, they don't even know that Jesus has come in the flesh. There's something completely wrong in their theology and practice. Why would you listen to them? So the character of our message can undermine our message. The character of the messenger can undermine the message. So here's a follow-up question. A little bit different. Does the character of the messenger validate the gospel message? Does the character of the messenger validate the gospel message? And the answer to that is absolutely no. And that is one of the key ideas in this section that we're looking at in Galatians chapter 1. Remember, he's told us that this is God's gospel, not man's. Men have no right to twist it, to distort it. And because it's not my gospel, my character doesn't validate or invalidate the message. It is validated all on its own, which is why, and we'll look at this in a minute, Paul didn't go immediately to Jerusalem and say, hey, I got this message from God and I want to make sure you think it's okay. He got the message from God and he went with it. Now, today, we don't have these um, visions from God and now I've got this message. We have the word of God. It's completed and it's, it's enough. So we have this message from God and we can go with it because it's been validated. In that first century, the canon of scripture, the, the entirety of scripture was not formalized. And so there would be times where you would say, hey, you know, this is what I'm, what I'm preaching. And there's a validation involved. But the, the gospel's validated. Why? Because it doesn't come from man. Men can't validate the gospel, and they can't invalidate the gospel. Brian already read for us this morning, so we're not going to go back there as much as I'm tempted to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's begging me to do it. You guys want to go to 1 Corinthians 1? We'll take a vote. Ready? Go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I was only kidding about the vote part. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 
Everyone there? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and following, right to the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why is it a stumbling block to Jews? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Why is it folly to the Gentiles? Listen, they like to deify their deities. They don't want to see them humiliated and bloodied on a cross. It's completely nonsense to them. And here we are, we look at the gospel, and we see Jesus on a cross, on a tree, being, becoming a curse for us. And we see him hanging bloodied on a cross, and we say, how could God do this for me? And it humbles us. But when we reside in pride and arrogance, no one needs to die for me. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need your help. Looking a little further, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, the one who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is, this is the gospel. And you know what, friends? It's the gospel, whether we display it or not. The gospel's validated. It's true. You don't have to agree with it to make it true. I don't have to display it to make it true. But there is a call in my life to display it, isn't there? There is a call in your life to display it, isn't there? It, our, our character should demonstrate the message that we proclaim because it undermines us and what we're saying. But it never undermines the gospel because the gospel's been validated by God. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says... And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest, what, in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. What is he saying? He's saying it really needs to go back to the gospel itself. So heading back to Galatians chapter 1, the character of God's messenger matters. The character of God's messenger can undermine the messenger and his proclamation. 
but the character does not, does not undermine the gospel message itself because the gospel message is validated of its own resources, of its own source, which is God himself. In verses 18 through 24, Paul is basically just recounting a period of time in his life for the benefit of the readers in Galatia. The Galatians had problems. You know what the problem was? Some people snuck into their assembly and were preaching another gospel. They were trying to tell them that there, was, there were better ways, better things you can do to make yourself more pleasing to God. And so Paul, in these first period, this first section of Galatians, is just letting them know, listen, God's gospel is God's gospel. Men have no say over what's true and what's not. It's true because it came from God. And so he tells them of his, his pilgrimage, essentially. He tells them how God revealed his son in him so that he might preach him among the, the Gentiles in verse 16. In verse 17, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three days, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still, still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So, more questions. This is what we do when we look at the, the scriptures. We ask questions. What, what's being said here? Here's the first question. What was the hotbed of Christianity when Paul wrote Galatians? Anyone know? What was the hotbed? Was it Galatia? Was it Syria? Cilicia? Was it Arabia? It was Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the hotbed of Christianity in that early century. Where was Paul? Well, according to verse 17, I want to show you a couple maps here, beautiful maps. The Arabian Desert. So somewhere over here is where Paul is in Arabia in this, this section. Next map. He went from Arabia. Now we're looking from a different vantage point. From Arabia, he went up into Damascus. You see Damascus here? I want to show you where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem's right here. Can you see that in the back? At least the distance. You've got Arabia out here, Damascus here. Here's Jerusalem and Judea, this region. It says when he left Damascus, he didn't head south. He didn't go hang out in Jerusalem. He went up into Syria, up here, and Cilicia, up here. Where's the hotbed of Christianity? Here. Where's Paul? Here. Here, here, and here. He's everywhere but the hotbed of Christianity. Who were the celebrities of biblical Christianity? The apostles were. The apostles. How much time did Paul spend with the apostles? Well, look at verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. That's two weeks in a day, right? This is, this, it's so important for me to have this great reputation. I want everyone to think well of me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get my, my gospel validated. I'm going to go hang out with the apostles so I can have my, my cred really lifted up. I want everyone to think really well of me. No, none of this. I don't need any of that. 
When, when the gospel came to Paul, he says, ah, I'm going over here. Why? Because the Spirit directed him. He's over in Arabia. He's up in Damascus. How long? Well, some period of three years. Some period. I don't know where he was uh, exactly. Now, you know what's interesting? Here's the hotbed again, down here. These people down here, in most of those churches that are in Christ, he was unknown in person. He didn't have YouTube back then, and Vimeo, and all of those things. No World Wide Web. So, they're only hearing rumors. They're hearing rumors. What did they hear? He who once tried to destroy us, the churches, now is preaching, notice, the faith. The faith. What's the faith? It's the gospel. You know what's interesting, and this is just a side note. I won't charge you for this one. Um, Paul uses several synonymous terms with the gospel in this first chapter. He uses the grace of Christ. He uses the gospel of God. He uses preaching him. And he uses here, in this one, the faith. The faith. It's the whole embodiment of Christian truth, which is summed up in the gospel. They, they didn't know him by face. They wouldn't be able to identify him, but they heard this. He used to try to destroy us, and now he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. What was the result of it? Verse 24. They glorified God because of me. You see, the gospel shines the light on the Savior, not the messenger. I remember I was in grade school at the time, and I was, I was at a, a local Christian school, and they told us, hey, this guy's coming to preach. All right, I had never heard of him personally. This guy's coming to preach. He has the most souls to his credit of anyone since D.L. Moody. I'll leave my commentary at a minimum. Um, he, he later was accused of some very egregious things. But regardless, if he could have been the most godly human being ever. And he has zero souls to his credit. Just so you know. Zero. Maybe you're the most godly person you know. You have zero souls to your credit. Maybe I'm as godly as I really want to be. I wish I were as godly as I want to be, because I'd want to be just like Jesus. If I'm as godly as I want to be, guess how many souls I have to my credit? How many? Zero. Who has the souls to their credit? There's only one God of salvation, and it's not me. And it's not that guy that was coming to preach at the school that time either. It's only God. See, the gospel's not validated by my character. The gospel's not invalidated by my, by my character. The gospel's the gospel. It's true. Paul could have caused his fame to go through the roof, but instead, he was just about the task that God had given him. And that is such a noteworthy thing. He just was about laboring in obscurity. You know, it, it's hard. You know, if, if we really wanted to have a really large church, move to North Carolina, because that's where everyone's moving, right? Move to South Carolina, the weather's better. Move to Florida, people like it. Or, if you really like the dry weather, go to Arizona. There's going to be a lot of people around there. You'll have a big, giant ministry. Like there are different places and things you could really call, you know, orchestrate things to make your name really well known. Whose name are we trying to make known? Is it about Cornerstone? Is it about the pastor or another pastor? Is it about the elders? Is it about, about you know, these people? No. There's only one name we care about. Do you know him? When you come here, do you hear about him? Him we preach. Christ. There's no other name that we care to promote but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This would lead us to a question. Was Paul a lone ranger? Oh, you know, I got my gospel from Jesus and I don't care about what anyone else has to say. 
I'm just going to go and do my thing. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to have influence upon me from anyone else. Is, is that his mentality? And I think that's the, a good question that is starting to be answered as we get to chapter 2. As we look at this next point, we're just going to look at the first two verses of chapter 2. And it's only going to be briefly, so you can actually you know, take a nice deep breath. I'm not going to be until 1230, I promise. The true gospel cannot be denied. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, then after 14 years, <laughs> he's not hanging out in Jerusalem, he's not making his name well known, he's just going and preaching Christ. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up, not because I felt really compelled to, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential or seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, I'd say this is, the phrase is not used in this passage, so I'm going to insert it just for your thought. I'm not saying that this is, this is, inspired writing. I'm definitely telling you it's not that. I'm just trying to insert a phrase because Paul comes up to Jerusalem and I would say this phrase should, should resonate with us for the sake of the gospel. Paul went up to Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. Again, it doesn't say that here, but that's the reason he went. He most likely, Barnabas went and found Saul or Paul in Damascus and said, hey, Antioch needs, needs some help. They're, they're, they're calling for you. And, and Antioch then sent Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem council that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. He went up because of a revelation, it says. Now, here's Barnabas coming and presenting this trip to him and Antioch commissioning them to go on their behalf to talk about this problem. You know what was taking place in Acts chapter 15? There was a mingling of the law with the gospel. And they, they were trying to figure out what is it that we need to require from a Gentile believer? Do they have to be circumcised? What, what is their adherence to the law supposed to be like ceremonially? And so Paul is called by God through Barnabas and the church of Antioch to, to go to Jerusalem. When he goes... The reason that he goes is, is to help with this problem and really, I think at this point, to demonstrate that he is not a lone ranger. He, his, his gospel that is validated by God can be corroborated by others. I want you to think about what I just said. Please think that one through. The gospel that is validated by God can be corroborated with others. In other words, if let's suppose you start... You, know, you move away from here because you know, your business calls you away. You start going to some other church because of whatever reason. And you, you start attending. And you hear the, the preacher. And he's preaching. And you know, he's, he's using God's word. And he's pointing to things. But it's always like we're the only ones that think this. We're the only ones that say this. We're the only ones that teach this way. I think you should start having some red flags. If I start saying that, you should have some red flags. Because the gospel message is not hidden. It's in the Bible. You're not like the only ones that have the, the, the market on truth. You've got the corner of the market, and, and only you have it. Everyone else is wrong, and you're right. The validated gospel can be corroborated by others. And so Paul had no problem going to Jerusalem and saying, hey, this is what I've been preaching. This is what I've been preaching. 
So if you start finding yourself listening to someone on, on YouTube or you're watching something on the radio or the, watching something on the radio, you, you've got the really new radio. <laughs> watching something on the television or you're listening on the radio and, and this person doesn't seem to align with other people. Now, just because someone doesn't align with other people doesn't make their message right or wrong. It's whether the scriptures say it. But if there's nobody else in any other church setting that says this, this thing about the Bible, you might want to start panicking, not for yourself, but for the, the validity of this message. Because it's not of any private interpretation. Remember that? Now, there are people that distort the gospel even in, in the general populace of Christianity. There, there are, and so we, we want to be careful and make sure that our message is distinct from mingling law with the gospel. But like, if, if, if I were to go and talk to a fellow pastor about what I preach, he should be able to say, no, I disagree with that because of this passage, or I agree with that because of this passage. Coming back here, right? Coming back here. So Paul, he's 14 years uh, outside of Jerusalem. He's doing, doing this ministry bringing the gospel. But when he's beckoned, he comes and he lays it out before them. And he says, here, here's the gospel I've been preaching to the, God, to, to the Gentiles so that we're not fighting against one another. Not fighting. Listen, churches are not in competition with one another. It's like, ooh, we've got 700, you only have 400. Ooh, we're doing a better job. It's not like that. That's, that's not what it's supposed to be. Now, there can be that competitive spirit that some person has somewhere, but that's not, that's not the goal. I wonder, when Paul presents this before the apostles, was he fearful about what they had to say? What do you think? Do you know anything about Paul? <laughs> I don't think he was afraid of what they were going to say. It says, um, lest or, or in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain, I don't think he's saying, ooh, Maybe they'll correct my, my revelation from Jesus. I think he's saying, I want to make sure that we're in step together. And he kind of gives that indication a little later in this passage. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. In other words, what he's saying is, it's really helpful to have people that are like-minded. It's really helpful. We, we should not be about one local church. Now, I'm happy to be here. Are you? I, I hope you are. I'm happy to be at Cornerstone. I, I, love, I love what God has done. I love the fact that God has caused this church to be planted in Providence uh, almost 80 years ago, and then at some point in the 60s, moving here, I think, is that correct, in the 60s? Yeah, it's moving here to this, to this location, and, and the Lord has kept it going all this time. I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. I love Cornerstone. I've been here since 1991 myself, first as a teenager, then as an assistant pastor, then as a pastor. I'm really glad to be a part of it, but I'm not about one church, unless you're talking about the universal church. The, like everybody, everyone that knows Christ, that, that church we need to be for. We need to make sure we're not lo uh, locked into one church, but the church and this is one manifestation of it, so we're very happy to be a part of it and, and, uh, and in investing ourselves in it. For us, we live in a time when the complete record of God's revelation is, is before us. So we don't have to go and, and figure out, well, is, is the revelation you received the same as the revelation I received? Is there any, any conflict in the message that we, present, uh, that, that we preach? Here it is. It's contained. The true gospel can't be denied. Paul had no question. He, he wasn't going there thinking, oh, I wonder what they'll say. He went and just laid it out before them. And you know what? Peter probably did exactly the same thing. with a, you, know, you know, Peter, 
he was a, a slightly bold himself, you'll remember. He had no problem speaking his mind. If the teaching aligns with scripture, we can give a hearty amen. If it is in opposition to the scripture, we must, we must deny its validity. So, as we close our time together, what, what do we do with this? Like, we looked at these passages. What, what's the, what do we need to, to think about? How, how should we be challenged by this passage? First of all, I'd say that we recognize that the character of the messenger matters. Listen, don't just go preach a message of the gospel and don't let that message make its impact in your life. Are you going to be perfect in this life? No. Are you going to sin? Yes. Will you be impatient sometime? Yes. Will you get angry at someone or something? Yes, you will. I'm not saying your life is going to be perfect. I'm saying that the gospel has to have made its impact in your life. So there's a, there's a, a work that God is doing in you character of the messenger matters. Secondly, the content of the message matters. The content of the message matters. What does the word say? Can we corroborate what we're preaching from the word? Are you confident? Can you hear someone critique you as you give the word? And they say, hey, something doesn't seem right. And they point you to the scriptures. Can you hear that? The content of the message matters. Thirdly, and above all of it, Above all of it, the message highlights the God of the message. The message highlights the God of the message. It's not our church. It's not my church. It's God's church. And when we preach, we preach for his glory so that people know Jesus Christ, who is the rescuer himself. He's the savior. So, if I can leave you with that main thought, verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. When we preach the message the right way, people will have a response toward God. Maybe positive, maybe negative. It shouldn't be a response about us because our message and our life, they should be hand in glove, right? Hand in hand. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we need you. We need you to work in us to produce your character in us, to demonstrate your love in us, to bring forth the glorious truths of the gospel through us. We pray that as we preach the message of the gospel, we would demonstrate it and that it would be in accordance with the truth of your word. And ultimately, we pray that you would be glorified as you bring people into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.